0: I am raising my voice so all the forgotten voices can be heard and I am holding my fist in the air for the independent women that are given the B words and I am clearing up the blurred lines because in these confines I still stand here with a strong spine because what is mine is mine and a no means no and a yes means yes and yes. I am her stories that have been forgotten from the histories, these historical women treated as if they were mysteries, his story. You're feeding us a false etymology. I am more than every single one of my responses being an apology. I am every lioness ripping through the stereotypes attached to our gender. I'm the feminist agenda, the so-called burned bras, the lack of female main role movie stars, all the girls in my gender study seminars. I'm the women chained to railings to get our vote. I am every hunger strike guard in their throat. I am Miss McCarthy teaching me I can achieve anything. I'm the female warriors, my bug or bodicea that could defeat any king. I am my trainers who said I got a mean left hook and I am all the women forgotten from my school textbooks.
1: The Creative Jungle podcast is all about speaking to and learning from inspiring entrepreneurs, creatives and well-being experts. You'll hear about their non-conventional lives and journeys, what they have learned and what tips and recommendations they have so that you too may be able to live a more creative and happier life.
2: We hope that if you take just one thing from this podcast, it is a practical tip that you can implement into your daily life to make things a bit happier, more creative or even just a little more inspired. The podcast is brought to you by us, Diana and Sam, a couple who co-founded Myo and Creative Jungle Company, which are all about bringing creativity to life and business. That's at Myo London and at creative jungle co on instagram we've helped tens of thousands of adults get creative in our arts and crafts classes with a range of creative kits or during our creative thinking workshops could,
1: could you, you be, be next? next be sure to click that subscribe button so that you can listen to future episodes and check out the previous episodes too okay now to saddle up let's, let's go, go. We have been absolutely looking forward to this podcast recording. We have Jaspreet Kaur, according to Instagram, is an award-winning spoken word poet and writer known as Behind the Netra, a history teacher, and author of Brown Girl Like Me, which comes out this autumn, but she is so much more than this.
2: She's made short films for the CBBC, spoken out of TEDx, is a research fellow in Birkbeck and performed her poem, The Moment, to Her Majesty the Queen and the Royal Family, which was broadcast live on BBC to 2.4
0: billion billion billion.
2: people across the (laughs) world. She's also been awarded the Asian Woman of Achievement Award for her work in arts and culture, the We Are the City Rising Star Award in education, and she's studied history and gender studies in university. You can find her at Behind the Netra. I can't pronounce it like that. (laughs) That's N-E-T-R-A on Instagram and on BehindTheNetra.com.
0: So welcome, Jasper. We're so excited to have you. Thank you guys, thank you so much for having me And yeah, I am fully blushing from that introduction uh, oh my God. Thank you guys so much and Oh, so, I mean, this is me. only half of it, really <laughs> <laughs> But before we dive in, you were just
1: telling us a little bit About this mental performance in front of the Queen To, to an, nearly like two and a half billion people across yeah, the world yeah, Just
0: yeah, it's whatever it's that actually, number is What is that number? I, I, I know, know, I know It was... It was insane. And and that day is still a really surreal moment for me. And yeah, yeah, it definitely feels like, is that a dream or did that happen? But yeah, yeah, it was it was one of my biggest performances. It was um, held in Westminster Abbey. Um, in front of yeah the royal family, political leaders, world leaders um as well as kind of like a, a general audience from from the UK and then on top of that was broadcast live on TV. So oh it was one of those days where I was like yeah can't, can't mess this one up yeah um, how long
1: did you prepare for for that for that to get to that moment like what was the
0: prep like? Yeah. So for that particular performance, it's actually quite a funny story. My husband and I were actually away that year on our 12 month honeymoon and backpacking across Asia. And and we were then camping across um, southern and central Africa for Mm -hmm. six months as well. So we were away for those 12 months. We weren't planning to come back to the UK. um, And I got this email whilst we were away. And I remember we were in Cambodia at the time and we had limited Wi-Fi when we were backpacking because we were going from hostel to hostel. So when we did have Wi-Fi, we'd have a quick check of our emails and, and carry on. And I saw this email saying would you like to perform at Westminster Abbey um for this service and I honestly thought it was a hoax I was like someone's playing a mean prank on me and we'll see if I reply this is not really an invitation to perform Um, and then I checked it all out and it was all legit and I was like Okay, no, this is real This is real, real. They, They'd seen my work online They'd seen some of my performances um, On YouTube And they wanted me to perform That particular poem Which was the moment And we then had to Kind of rethink our plans Whilst we were travelling Could we make it back in that time yeah. And it just so happened That we had a two-week window Where we needed To renew our passport Because we had run out of pages Which, which <laughs> is an amazing luxury to have and yeah. we needed to renew our passports we had to come back for that. Um my husband actually had his graduation at that same time oh. and I was also invited for that performance. So it was kind of like That's the amazing. universe was telling us oh. meant to be. Yeah. The universe is telling us come home for two weeks. Um and we didn't tell our families either. So we came home fully it was a full surprise when we when we landed back for those two weeks. Oh. Um and then yeah, yeah, I I had about I'd say about 3 months uh, to prep for it and to rehearse for it it was a poem I'd already written so it was just a matter of, of, of memorizing it because I yeah. wanted to do it in in true spoken word form which would be without script in hand um and yeah on the day we had a dress rehearsal and it was all it was all very w- weird very surreal day um but yeah a really special day because my mom and dad were also there my husband mm. was there um, and and yeah, you were just saying
1: About having them on one side And the royal family And you're like Where were you
0: Where am blind? I looking Yeah Wh- Where do I focus Where do I <laughs> yeah. Make eye contact Yeah I just looked past Everybody Because yeah. if I looked to the left I would have Probably freaked out And fainted If I looked to the right All I could see was my mom Like bawling Like crying <laughs> Crying and bawling I was like No I can't look that direction Either <laughs> Yeah she must have been Incredibly proud Just is
1: Would you say That was one of your kind of proudest moments I know we'll talk about that in a bit but yeah was that a highlight
0: for you yeah it definitely is a highlight and I think there's been a lot of special performances over the years and I'm really grateful that even some of the kind of more grassroots work that I've done I've I've had the opportunity to work and perform Mm -hmm. on lots of incredible stages Um, but I think that one will always hold a special memory for me because seeing the look on my mom and dad's face that day is something I, I can't get out of my memory. That will be something that's ingrained in me forever because kind of just seeing it from their perspective, which is as, as immigrants that had moved to the UK in the 70s, coming here to set a foundation in the UK and then for their children, setting the expectation of, yeah, strong foundations, definitely a strong education good jobs and and that's what myself and my siblings all went on to do mm. but this was something that they would ne- have never expected no their, pinnacle. Their, yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah their youngest daughter to be standing here in front of this audience that's broadcast live on tv across the world is something they would have never imagined um so yeah it, it really is a special a special memory for me and for them as well Oh, brilliant I
2: I have two silly questions Just on that particular thing Like, how long was the poem? And I'm just trying to figure out Like, yeah I can't remember how long it was And also, what was the acoustics like? Because it was in a very special (laughs) place Which is like there is lots of orations and ceremonies and stuff like it must have as a venue to perform. It must have been incredible.
0: This this is really valid questions. And I wish somebody would have spoken to me about the acoustics of Westminster <laughs> Abbey before I got there, because, yeah, you're you're echoing out and can't hear yourself back, which wow. was quite scary. And I had a mic in one ear and um, a microphone attached to me and I couldn't actually hear myself in, in the usual way that I would when you perform on a standing mic. Oh, so it was quite scary I was like is anyone even hearing anything because is this, is this even coming out right but yeah no it was it was all fine and, and the poem itself was about two and a half minutes long so yeah. it did really that bad. feel like yeah. the longest two minutes yeah it is, it is. <laughs> and I had to to go up a set of steps and perform Form and at the end of the performance, come down the steps, and then in my in the back of my head, I'm like, okay, don't fall down these steps, don't fall down these <laughs> steps. Don't fall down steps. Okay. Um, yeah, you, it's, it's strange what worries then come to your head when you're yeah. a big performance like that. But yeah, I really just get moment. so aware of every single thing yeah. that you're doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
2: you get to halfway and you're like on the home stretch.
1: I'm yeah. this. Here we go. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and. I I love what you said about your parents being so proud, especially from having moved here in the 70s and then set up roots and then set up a platform for you guys to grow from. Let's go back to that childhood. And um, can you tell me a little or tell us a little bit about how you grew up and, you know, any kind of formative
0: experiences you had that shaped you to where you are? Yeah yeah absolutely and, and and my family are definitely a huge part of my life and I grew up in quite a big family and um, and quite an intergenerational household yeah. so there was my grandparents my parents my siblings um and then my older siblings where there's about a 14 year age gap um when they oh, got married wow. al- al- also their kids as well so my my nephews and my niece also lived with us so we definitely had quite an intergenerational household yeah. growing up yeah absolutely. yeah how many siblings do you have? So I have two older brothers and one older sister and um, so there is a there is a significant age gap between the the older two so my eldest brother and sister are in their early 40s then wow. there was a ten, 10 year gap and we always laugh and say to my parents like what happened in those 10 years yes. <laughs> and then my other brother was born and then a year later I was born and um, so yeah wow. yeah, quite, quite a big family and we're all very close um we 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 see each other quite often obviously because the lockdown over the last year was really hard and and not spending time with one another one another over that time was was really difficult for us because we are used to big family get-togethers yeah. and our our family dinners just consist of 16 people like minimum, (laughs) like that's a normal (laughs) family dinner and I don't know how to cook for less than 10 people, even Um, now when I'm just cooking for myself and and my husband, I end up cooking enough for like a week. You need to to
1: teach me that, I'm so, I end up making literally like two handfuls, I need to learn (laughs) how to expand the cooking
0: Oh brilliant. Yeah, so it was always yeah growing up was, was always a lively busy household which had its pros and cons and there was definitely no privacy in our household which which yeah privacy wasn't a thing <laughs> so mm-hmm. there was definitely a few downsides there too but overall yeah that uh, my childhood home was one of, of lots of happy memories yeah. um, but also some difficult times too and, and and I can definitely reflect on some of those moments too and, and how how I made it through those times and yeah. um, but yeah, my, my parents have have definitely had a big role in inspiring who I am today, especially my dad. Mm. Um, and I talk about that quite a lot about how without the encouragement of my from from my dad to to get into reading, to love books, um our, our house used to be so full of books, and and it would be authors from from all around the world, and and all walks of life. And my dad would take us to the library every single week. We had a we had a local library that my dad would always take us to. I'd I'd take out as many books as I could, read them all within that week, and return them back the following week and get more. And my dad definitely encouraged that love for literature, that love for learning, mm-hmm. um, and also for my love for history. Um, and that's probably one of the reasons why I went on to study history um, at University University mm. and even went on to to go on to 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 write um, and and even being a poet. So yeah, they had a big role in all of that, and, and yeah. my Dad definitely big played a big part in inspiring my love yeah. for reading, my love for books.
1: Did, um, you, and-
0: did you think? Did you know at the time that that's what you wanted to do
1: when you grew up? You know, doing this mixture of being a writer and a teacher. Um, did you have that in your mind, or actually you had? something completely
0: different. (laughs) Yeah, definitely, definitely not that. Definitely not this this trajectory that I've now found myself on, on on these kind of multiple titles of poet, writer, teacher, was definitely never what I expected. Um, The traditional route was definitely what I expected. And I guess that was the environment that I was in and and the environment that I grew up in, that Mm -hmm. my family definitely wanted myself and my siblings to get a good education, um, find a secure career path. Um, and my, my siblings all went on to do quite traditional jobs. Um, one of my brothers is an accountant, the other became a doctor, and it was obviously the golden child. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my, sister, my, my sister works um, in HR. Um, and then when I wanted to become a teacher, that was something that my family really understood and, and the role and profession as, as a teacher was something they, they understood and respected. Uh, but I remember when I wanted, wanted to go on to study history, and then later on, gender studies, they were a little bit like, huh? what, what are these things? Yeah, yes. that history, the history they could understand. And, and my family definitely got that. But I remember when I was doing my master's in gender studies, my whole family were like, what is this? What is gender studies? Yeah. And I would explain to them what I was studying and the theories that we were looking at and looking at stuff like toxic masculinity, looking at health, looking at the body, social policy. Um, and yeah, they were they were totally confused by it all, but they knew it was something I was very passionate about and knew that was something I, I really cared about. And when I talked about kind of themes about feminism and inequality and, and fighting for rights for women, I used to apply it a lot to the Sikh faith too, and mm. and how a lot of those principles are a part of the Sikh faith. Mm. So my family really understood that when I was mm. like, these are the things I'm fighting for, and I, I would bring it back to our faith and and why those things were so important to me. Mm. Um, I but- love how you 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 um connected those two together, and um, you
1: know something that they probably and I know you know I always joke about ethnic parents, you know my family the same. Some subjects you're like what what is that like what are you yeah. studying because they just something they haven't grown up with but how you managed um, it back to and just showing
0: that connection back to yeah and, and things that they could understand and connect to themselves and later on when I then started the poetry journey that was also a big question mark that was like what is what is this now? What is this poetry journey that I'm on? Um, and they knew I'd, I'd been writing poetry and they knew I was very passionate about writing, but the poetry was something I'd kept to myself for many years, over kind of 10, 12 years. I'd kept it all to myself. Um, and when I decided to start performing and starting to share it with the world, my, my parents did have a lot of reservations and understandably they were worried about things like performing late at night in, in areas they weren't familiar with and kind of fulfilling perhaps some of those stereotypical understandings but also the fact that as their daughter they were worried about me performing in these places they didn't know where I was who who would be there those sort of concerns would come up so what I eventually started doing was taking them to all my shows I was like come see what I do come see what it is that 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 I do and what this poetry is all about and and come see how it inspires people and so I started to take them on that journey with me and they started to come to my shows and, and they started to come to these events and they'd be sitting there and they would see the audience really connecting to the poetry and they would see how it would inspire people or they would see at the end of the show when people would come over and want to talk to me about it or or talk about how they really resonated with some of the poetry and and it was one of those typical things of of every mum that when another mum came over and was like your daughter is doing such amazing things then my mum was like oh yeah she is that's that's my daughter and then she was like Totally on board um, when she started hearing some of the things from other mums. I Um, can imagine. Yeah, that's something I I definitely talk to a lot of creatives about and a lot of young people, especially from the South Asian community that are interested in getting into the arts or perhaps fields that aren't the traditional... Migrant roots of yes. the doctor, doctor, uh, dentist, accountant. lawyer, accountant. Yeah, it, when it isn't those traditional roots, how can we get our parents more on board? Mm. Um, and one of the things I, I encourage people to do is is see if you can bring your family and your parents with you on that journey, Mm -hmm. let them see and experience what it is that you do so that they can become more familiar with it. Because a lot of that fear is just the fear of the unknown. So Mm -hmm. when they do see what it is and what the potential for it can be, um, that could be a way of getting them more on board. Um, Because we need to see people like ourselves in these industries. We need to see... I mean, of color people of color in these industries because if we if we don't other people are going to be telling our stories for us and other people are going to be controlling that narrative without us having any say Damn. um and, and that's exactly what I've been trying to show people that that's why we need to be here so our voice can be heard
2: yeah where, where would the early performances have been like I kind of I can picture a comedy club I can picture like a <laughs> bar. <laughs> where, where does, because I'm sorry, I'm totally out of touch of it, yeah. but like, where is the poetry scene? Like, where does it tend to pop up and take place? Is the
0: spoken e- word scene yeah. isn't too different from the, the things you've just described, okay. <laughs> actually. So, yeah, so spoken word nights or open, uh, open mic nights um, are similar to that. They would be venues. In all major cities across the UK, um, and they can be small, they can be big. But when when I first started out, um, the first show I ever performed at was this kind of open mic night for different artists. So it could be musicians, poets, um, and art in different form to come share. Um, and it was happening in Hounslow in West London. So I'm from East London, born and raised. I have moved to West London since, but at the time, I was like, nobody knows me in West London. If I go perform there and it goes terribly wrong, that's okay. I'll just run back home and never do it again. And just got to a point where I felt like, okay, I had, I have nothing, I have nothing to lose here. Um, and that first poem that I actually decided to perform was a poem called Queens and Corpses, um, and it's actually a really heavy poem about the un- ongoing sun preference in South Asian communities. Um, and the reason I wrote that poem and decided to share it in the first place was because at the time I was, I was doing my master's in gender studies and I was doing my research thesis on, on sun preference and looking at really heavy issues like female infanticide and sex-selective abortions and looking at why are these things happening specifically in Punjab in India, where my family comes from, but also how these things have translated in the West. So why do we have this ongoing, some preference even going on here in the Western world? Um, And I wrote this 20,000 word paper and I was super proud of it. And I was working with charities with it. Um, But I realized that not everybody's got the time to read a 20,000 word Mm -hmm. paper. So I thought, you know what, let let me use this skill that I already have, this poetry that I've been doing myself for years. Let me kind of translate this research into a spoken word piece. And that's what I wrote that poem into. And that's where Queens and Corpses came from. And that was the poem I performed on that first night. Yeah. And my my life changed forever from, from that one night. And it, it was filmed by somebody in the audience. And the next morning, the video had gone viral. And I was waking up to messages from people in Australia, in India, in North America, in Canada. And I was like, I was just amazed that... Yeah poetry could have this impact on people and it could be a really accessible way to talk about taboo issues to talk about social issues um and even on the night I really saw in the audience eyes how how much it connected to the people sitting there especially the women in that room that really connected with those with those words that I was saying and and sharing our story and our voice um and then I never stopped I carried on from that first open mic night and started going to more started building my confidence started building kind of my stage presence, my voice, really starting to develop the craft. And I would go to other shows and watch other poets and and really started doing the work at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really grew from there. And Mm -hmm. I started to share more more of my work online, more of my performances online. And it eventually started snowballing where I was teaching five days a week, uh, Monday to Friday, still teaching full time and then performing at shows two, three times a week. Doing workshops on the weekends, and and that was what the last five years really looked like. Balancing being—I uh, used to say—a teacher by day and a poet by night. By night,
1: <laughs> the real artists.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, was this like you're in the classroom,
2: you get a ten-minute break, you're scribbling po- poem? Like, how did you manage that? doing the full-time work and kind of doing the creative bit on the side, like did you have dedicated time during the week Mm. to focus on writing or Mm. was it just free flowing? And if you got inspiration, you wrote it down or thought about it. How did that work?
0: Yeah. So I, I, at that time, I think for those, those five years, it was a lot of what was inspiring me at those, at that time. Um, And that's how I started off trying to navigate, okay, still teaching full time and and dedicating my, my heart my soul there. But also whenever I was feeling inspired to write or there was issues that I was really passionate about or causes I really wanted to support, I think a lot of that flow was coming quite naturally to me. But over time, I realized that I had to also put the time in and give it the time when it's needed to and I I kind of started to create a bit more of a structure to it and giving my time to just free write and giving my time to just explore different concepts and different styles Um, and that started happening more over time Um, but there would be days where a poem would come to me mid-lesson and I'd be like I need to hold that and Keep that in my mind and, and hold that for later because a lot of the time in the classroom and, and working with young people I would be so inspired by them and yeah. inspired by the things they would teach me and the, and, and the things that they would show me so I would be yeah jotting things that down throughout the day I would be writing on the tube the tube used to be a really popular time for, for me to write poetry Um, so I used to get the central line into work every day and I had a good 45 minute journey on the central line where if I was lucky enough to get a seat um, I would to sit there and, and be writing a few poems on, on the tube but it really was any time and any any moment I could I'd, I'd be writing and and when concepts or ideas would give me inspiration I'd be dropping them on my phone mm. on my hand on post-it notes and um, so it was like that for for a good five six years yeah um,
1: mm-hmm. I really love two things I um I really loved about that is how you recognize that you needed to do the work because I think that's something that um a lot of people myself included at the beginning just think oh inspiration will strike me all the time and I'll just (laughs) constantly produce all these things but actually you need to hone your craft and sometimes you try something and it might not work or Mm. but the more you do that the more that inspiration does find you you know and is a quote that I keep whacking out but I I really love it inspiration has to find you working um and Mm. I think that's that's just what you're saying and then And finding the tube (laughs) quite a a, a meditative place to get that work out. I can just imagine because there's no other distractions, no phone no TV just there. Yeah.
2: On that point, did the restriction help as in like lots of creative talks, creatives talk about like having restrictions on materials or time and stuff like that? Was that the case on the tube where you're like 45 minutes? And if you put pressure on yourself to produce something, that you're more inclined to make it because there is that window of time or did, was that not relevant at all?
0: I guess, um, yeah, I think it, it's a lot to do with that being the only time where there were no other distractions. If I did sit and get a seat on the central client central line, there would be no other distractions, no other phone beeping, no other things going on. So it did give me that free time to just, just explore, um, and, Even on the Tube, lots of things would inspire me, things I would see, people around me and and stories would come to me. Um, But now I found it quite interesting that because I haven't been on the Tube very much and when I left that particular role and wasn't doing that journey, I then had to think about, okay, other moments where I would need to find time and putting in that work and putting in that structured time, um, whether that was after work, after teaching, whether that was on the weekends, um, but also being very conscious of the fact that I didn't want to burn out either, balancing these multiple roles um, was exhausting for five years and I did burn out and that burnout would also inevitably roll into feeling writer's block and not wanting to write at all. Um, So it did take a good few years till I really got a bit more of that, I'm not going to say balance because there's never balance, Um, but it did take a good few years till I, I worked out what worked for me and what yeah. routine really worked for me. Yeah. Um, and what was the healthiest option for me for my well being as well, so that yeah. I wasn't burning myself out. Mm. Um, but that took a few years. Yeah. yeah. Practice.
1: Um, let's go back to the beginning of your poetry writing, because. I mean, it sounds like it's been a journey and we're well into the journey, which is amazing <laughs> to see. Uh, but we we've seen the, the amazing and very moving TEDx talk that you did on how poetry saved your life mm-hmm. and how you would, you know, dealing with anxiety and, you know, finding that out in yourself and how poetry helped as a, as a process of healing that and working through that. Can you tell us a little bit more about about that experience?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and that's really where the poetry journey first began. When mm-hmm. when I was about 13, um, I started suffering from anxiety attacks and mm-hmm. panic attacks. And at that point as, as a teenager, I had no idea what they were. And to be completely honest with you, I thought I was dying. I thought every time I would have a panic attack, I was having a heart attack because that was the only thing medically I could could associate it to or to relate it to. Um, and there was a number of reasons why those anxiety attacks and panic attacks were coming. There were things from my childhood that had surfaced. I was being really badly bullied in school, um, really low amounts of confidence and self-esteem. Um, and over the, over the years, it even then fell into periods of depression as well. Yeah. And, and growing up in quite a traditional Punjabi household, mental health was, was definitely something we didn't talk about. Um, and we're definitely in a different place now. And I'd love to reflect on that, too. But at this at that particular point, it was something I'd heard really negative tropes about. I'd heard really negative slurs being given pe- to people with mental health issues. Um, they would be really kind of shub- shunned. And, and it was really taboo to even talk about mental health in that way. So I kept it all bottled in and had no one to speak to about it and use writing as my only outlet. Um, and at the time I didn't know I was writing poetry at first it started as as a journal that I still have till this day and I would just let out all the emotions that were kind of running around chaotically in my mind I would let them out onto the page Mm -hmm. and anything that was feeling physically whenever I was having those anxiety attacks or panic attacks I'd write them out and I was doing that for for quite a few years and up until Around the age of 18, where even my depression got really, really bad, Mm. Um, that was only that was probably the first time I I started to look for more help. Mm. Um, And that's why I talk about the fact that poetry really did save my life during those years, because if I didn't have that one outlet, if I didn't have some way of, of unbottling those emotions that I was holding inside, um, I would have fell into some of those darker thoughts I had, especially around the age of 18. Mm. Um, And that's why I wanted to share that story. Doing that TEDx talk was definitely one of the scariest moments of my life, one of the most vulnerable moments of my life, um, and sharing that journey and that story. And I remember just before I did the TED talk, I I spoke to my mum and dad about it too, about what I was going to share and what I was going to tell the world. Um, And they were really supportive about it and going on that journey with them about explaining To them, what anxiety is and and what a panic disorder looks like and what depression is, was really a journey for all of us um, to really understand. Um, And I wanted to share that with the world, uh, just just so I could show others that perhaps went through similar experiences that they weren't alone in this. Yeah. and that's and that there are other options other than the more traditional mental health services that are out there such as counseling such as cognitive behavior therapy talking mm. therapy there are also more creative outlets that can support your mental well-being alongside perhaps more traditional um services too mm. um and that's when I, I did a bit of research with the arts and well-being foundation and and that particular piece of research found that for so a cohort that they were researching poetry, and the arts within six weeks of a program of doing poetry specifically for anxiety and depression can can improve improve people's mood um, and reduce their anxiety and depression within just six weeks. Six weeks. Um, and it can also save the NHS around two hundred thousand pounds a year. So there's kind of another benefit there. That if in we it's such in, a
1: short time frame as well to an effect, yeah, to a positive outcome. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, six weeks to, to feel that difference is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's that was something I really wanted to share with with not only the South Asian community, but with the wider community as well, that we have these creative outlets that perhaps we can tap into yeah. to support our mental well being and to support what I, I prefer to call kind of our mental fitness. Yes. Um, and I've started using that word a lot more when I'm talking about mental health nowadays, because I want it to be seen as, as something that we associate with our fitness because we we talk about physical well-being and physical fitness all the time and we talk about our gym subscriptions and we'll spend money on our on our physical health but would we Perhaps put their time and resources into our mental health and our mental fitness as well. That's equally what I want people to start doing mm. um, and thinking about the things that support their mental well-being and and, and make their mental health feel nourished. Yeah. And, and perhaps writing and poetry can be one of them, uh, yeah. just like it was for me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I, I mean, it's a testament to, for how much, it, how powerful it was for you because of how long you kept it up, as you said before you actually then sought professional help you know this was really your your way of of working through that and that's just such a testament to the to the power that it has um and I love how you talk about mental fitness we we actually spoke to a to a psychotherapist um in an Mm -hmm. earlier podcast and she was saying exactly the same thing in fact she calls some of her practice a mental health workout you know a, me- mm-hmm. a mental workout because you think of workouts for your body and you think oh I should probably do a workout now but you you don't necessarily make the same time to think oh mm-hmm. I should give my brain you know a meant I should do a mental health workout or a mental yeah. health stretch <laughs> yeah um, yeah exactly the same way so yeah
2: so, yes, yeah, so that's one really good benefit, I guess, of being creative and expressing yourself is kind of it can help you deal with things going on in your life or things you're trying to suppress. Mm. Kind of on the flip side, a little bit, and I think you've done incredibly with this also, is kind of using your creative skills and your voice to raise awareness of issues, causes, the underrepresented, particularly around the Sikh and South Asian communities and women's rights. The answer is obvious, but I still want to ask it like why is that important to you? Mm-hmm.
0: So that so that's actually a question I often have to re-ask myself time and time again about what is it that this mission that I'm on and, and what is it, the purpose that I'm trying to serve. And I think a lot of it all comes back to the meaning behind a lot of the work that I do, whether it's teaching and education, whether it's the the poetry, whether it's the social activism. I think all of that comes back to this feeling of, I know a lot of people say it, but wanting to leave this world in a better place than I, that I found it. Um, and I feel that for me, that can be through inspiring young people, that can be through writing, that can be through educating um, and, and doing those things to really improve the world in, in a way that, that makes a difference. Um, and this comes back to something in, in the Sikh faith that I always reflect on and, and connect to a lot. And in the Sikh faith, we have something called seva and sirva means selfless service, and that each and every single one of us is here to perform some sort of sirva in this world. And it's really just a matter of finding out what that sirva is. What is it that allows you to help others? Um, And that is the mission that I feel like I'm always going to be on. And that will be in different shapes and forms throughout my life. Um, And that's something I'm also starting to understand that sirva can look like lots of different things um, that can be in the home. That can be in within your family, that can be in the workplace, that can be through activism. Um, and this server, this selfless service is is really what I do it all for and, and is what I come back to. And, and sometimes I do have to remind myself that when there's lots of deadlines, when there's 50 emails waiting in my inbox, when I'm worrying about social media and social media following and, and all those kind of things that that do come up when, when you're on this road of, of of the work that we do. I do always, always have to kind of recenter and come back to what is this mission that I am, I am on? And it is to help people, whether that's one person, whether, whether that's 100 people wouldn't really matter if it's if it's helping at least one person, then I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah.
2: No, that's really good. Really, mm. really nice answer, and mm. so genuine as well. And it comes across in everything you've done. Just yeah. trying to be helpful to people and inspire people.
1: Mm. It but, sounds like a really good anchor, as you say, just yeah. to, keep, to mm. like a good place to keep coming back to. A good anchor for everything you do.
2: I kind of the next question here is is around teaching, uh, in terms of being a history teacher for yeah. for five plus years. And to me, teaching is kind of, it's <laughs> definitely one of the hardest jobs you can do, but it's also the most impactful, like inspiring and educating children who will go on to live 50, 60, 70, 80 years and, and go and do lots of incredible things. Mm. What was that experience like, first of all, as in teaching? I just, <laughs> yeah. five, I have five nieces and nephews, and like two hours mm. with them is. I can't imagine teaching a classroom of 20 kids for a whole day for months on end so like what was that like and also just creativity in schools because that's something Mm. that we hear quite often Mm. is that it is something that's being very underfunded there isn't much focus on it Mm. Um, and
1: yet and yet as as we get older we realize it is one of the most valuable skills and you know people think creativity is just x in a box but actually it's, it's a it's a wider way of thinking so yeah it would be great to get your perspective on on that and in, in, in the school experience
0: absolutely yeah well teaching is I always say to people that you'll never have two days that are the same every day is completely different different challenges um as well as different happy moments too um, and I mentioned it earlier that working with young people is so inspiring you will learn so much from them on a daily basis as well as them learning from you Um, and that always looks different every day but yeah, working with teenagers is definitely definitely not for everybody. <laughs> um, there's a lot of patience required. There's a lot of um, skills that you develop over the years that that kind of help you navigate it. Because yeah, I, as a secondary school teacher, I'm I'm working with people as young as 11 years old, all the way up into up until the age of 18, just before they go off to uni. So that's quite a a breadth of age groups but also such a significant point in their lives as yeah. well so the things that they experience and learn and navigate during those years uh, will be so significant to who they are later on in life and and my role as a teacher specifically as a history teacher is to show them the beautiful world of history that is diverse that is inclusive um, And unfortunately, history always gets a bad rap in schools of being one of the boring subjects and being the less fun subjects. And I wanted to come into the classroom and show them how amazing history can be and how relatable it can be to each and every single one of us. So. I would want to inspire them to love history as much as I did. So my lessons would not look like an average history lesson that you might remember in school, because I was not an average history teacher. I do not look or sound like your average history teacher. When you, when you think of history teacher, you may remember the teachers you had back in school. I did not look like any of those. So I had to bring an element of that to the classroom. Um, And thankfully that's why lots of students loved coming to my lessons and and lots of them went on to study history and politics and and sociology and the humanities. So I guess my mission was was met there that I helped inspire them to love those subjects. Um, But one of the biggest challenges specifically with history was that, even till now, I was was teaching a curriculum that is not diverse, that is not inclusive. And it's still very Eurocentric. It's still very white male dominated. Um, and, And teaching that in the classroom was tough because I would see on the kids' faces that they couldn't see a history that felt relative to them. So I was always trying to pull in extra resources, always trying to bring in those other narratives and those other histories. And, and that was on me to bring in a lot of that extra work and resources and to make those lessons more exciting and engaging. Yeah. Um, and not all teachers can do that. And not all teachers should have to do that. A lot of that should be given to them. So this is kind of an ongoing discussion and an ongoing fight about what our national curriculum should look like here in the UK. and I think I think that goes hand in hand with with this issue with creativity being lost from our schools and being lost from our classrooms because there is so much of a focus on what our curriculum should look like and what academic attainment they should be achieving and what grades and levels they should be at by this age and this age and this age that we're losing so much of that and, it, and it's really hard to see because as a creative myself yeah. being in that environment was often really upsetting really draining um to be in that environment where you could see such important parts of being a young person and also then in our adult lives too about being creative and allowing ourselves to be creative being stripped away from them is really difficult but my for myself I was always trying to bring creativity into the classroom wherever I could um yeah. and uh whether it was uh teaching about The Vietnam War and the Viet Cong and setting up booby traps, fake booby traps around the classroom, (laughs) or whether that was writing a spoken word piece in reflection to a speech by Martin Luther King. Mm. Um, I was always trying to bring in creative elements wherever I could um, Mm. and letting the young people themselves navigate what creativity looks like for them and giving them the freedom and the space to do that and the time to do that. Um, And I always used to say that my classroom was a safe space, whether Mm. that was in the lesson or whether that was lunch times and break times or after school. Um, My classroom was always a space where kids would love to come talk and discuss and debate um I used to run lots of extracurricular clubs too um like a feminist feminist society a debate club so it was always a space for them to explore these other sides of themselves that they might not necessarily get to do in the kind of strict formal classroom awesome. setting
1: yeah I I, oh, I should have come to your club <laughs>
2: On each episode, we want to shout about a charity or social enterprise we are passionate about. Today, we'd like to mention Young Minds, who are fighting for a future where all young minds are supported through life, whatever the challenges.
1: Children and young people with mental health problems are at the heart of everything they do, and we believe it's a very worthy cause doing amazing things. Find out more at youngminds.org.uk. Now back to the podcast. it's so true um it's uh, when you're when you're young and learning you you don't know what's out there and other forms mm. of of playing with the subject or experiencing a subject like you said you know and one way might you know just reading might not work for you mm. but actually debating a topic and flipping it both sides might resonate or hearing a piece of spoke you know a spoken word might resonate and mm. I, I I think it's I mean a credit to you that you brought that into the cl- classroom and I'm sure the children are absolutely appreciated that. And what you said about a safe space, I I absolutely resonate with and it's something we always say actually in the studio as well when people come and um to visit and do something creative it's there's no right or wrong here you know mm-hmm. it's just about you playing and expressing and having a good time and doing what feels right yeah
0: yeah,
2: yeah. when I think back to school like being afraid you know, <laughs> used to go around to the classroom and ask students to read out particular paragraphs Ooh. and you um, I would never remember what's in the paragraph because I'm so (laughs) focused on making sure I don't sound stupid when I say it because that whole safe space thing isn't necessarily there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's really refreshing to hear. Uh, I think with history in general, it's something most adults revisit because they they appreciate that they weren't fully into it in school. And they're like, it's so important to be aware of your history and all the different perspectives Mm -hmm. because that's what shaped where we are now. And kind of, I think Sapiens is a usually popular book because that's Mm -hmm. almost like it's a big big book but it kind of packs a lot in to kind yeah. of provide where we come from and all that kind of stuff which mm. is great
1: mm.
2: that was a ramble so apologies <laughs> <for that.
1: laughs> no no it's it's I think
2: it's very true where are we are we've about 20 more questions oh, here oh gosh so, yeah we're very conscious of time. Okay. There's so many things we want to ask you
1: um I'll go here the, the creative process so cool on your creativity um Where do you get your poetry inspiration from? You talked a bit about having it from um, your experiences or, you know, from your thesis, which I thought was brilliant, summarizing that into a a spoken word piece. But in general, yeah, what do you find sparks your creativity? And then what is your process for for creating them? Do you have a set process?
0: So the inspiration behind the creativity can come from a number of different places. Um, It could be the injustices I'm trying to fight, at that particular point in time, it could be things that I've read, it could be work from other creatives, it could be other poets and writers that have kind of inspired some of my own work. Um, but sometimes I do try to take out dedicated time to research um, what it is that I want to create and what it is that I want to write. Um, and I think that time to to research and and a little bit of that kind of planning is also important with the kind of creativity that I do in terms of writing and poetry. That if you read read some of my work and read some of specifically the kind of longer poems you'll see that there's actually a lot of academic research that goes behind some of those pieces and and I spoke about queens and corpses coming from my master's thesis Mm. but if you even look at some of the other poems that I've written you'll see academic theory in there you'll see scholars in there you'll see philosophers in there you'll see quotes and and kind of trinkets and things that I've learned and read um, through research so that kind of goes hand in hand with a bit of my actual writing process as well. Yeah. That sometimes there'll be moments of kind of pure inspiration. And that would be me sitting there, letting out whatever thoughts and lines and rhymes come to me. Um, and that's kind of more of the free write, free writing time, that that kind of that natural inspiration. But there's also the other side of my creative process, which actually takes a bit more time and takes a bit more research and takes a few different stages in that process and there'll be a number of different drafts um and you can i will I I can personally see the difference between some of the pieces that are pure inspiration yes. and which are the pieces that have taken a bit more time and a bit more research. And I think they both have beauty in them and they both are equally as valid for different reasons. Um, but there are some pieces where I say, okay, no, this needs a bit more time and this needs a bit more pause and this needs a bit more reflection um, before I get it out there and before I share it with, with the world. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas some, some, other, some other pieces where you can feel the real heat the real passion the real fire and i am be like no this is it this is what the world needs to hear this is what I'm ready to share and I will Um, so yeah it's a combination of the two of them and I think that kind of defines a lot of who I am as well yeah definitely I can see that exactly (laughs) (laughs) the one side of me that is very I guess the teacher side of me the academic side of me the researcher in me Mm. but the other side of me that is just spontaneous and fiery and passionate um equally comes out as well so yeah it's, it's balancing the two of those yeah absolutely
2: yeah I'm gonna ask a stupid question again mm. just some po- and I have loads of questions I'd love to ask yeah, just on like good. the mechanics of poetry but I won't but kind of with poetry is there certain poems you write and just will never perform as in it just doesn't feel like it's something that should be spoken word kind of projected it's it should be left to the person's imagination to almost Mm. figure out the nuances of it or is that totally wrong like can every poem you've written be performed Performed, or is there there like performance Mm. poetry almost in the kind of just putting it out there and presenting it to people and Mm -hmm. poetry that's just to be kind of read in solitude and not to be performed
0: Mm. I guess the particular themes will answer that question a bit better I think When I'm writing about themes like love and deeper emotions that kind of sit inside me sometimes, those ones I I like to just leave for the page and I like for people just to read and interpret them for themselves um, without too much of my own voice coming through in them. Um, So those particular themes I do just leave to the page and, and that's definitely where my love poetry comes in. The poems that are about... The kind of social justice issues and when I'm talking about identity when I'm talking about race and when I'm talking about my voice as, as a woman of color and as a Punjabi Sikh woman those ones I, I know when I write them, I want them to be heard. Okay. Um, and as I'm writing them, I can I can even hear them. And as I'm writing them, I'm thinking about how I, I personally would want them to be delivered um, and how I would deliver them on a stage and how I want them to be sound. So they're written with the intention of being heard. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess it de- depends on what theme I'm writing about. Will it be something that needs a voice that I want the world to hear? Or will it be something that's, perhaps a bit softer something that I want to hold inwards and just can stay on the page um yeah
1: that's beautiful to hear that you're holding
0: it inwards but you're
1: leaving it on the page for somebody else still to enjoy so it's still out there but out there in a different way yeah yeah
2: And yeah, it must be really cool. Like if five people read the same poem, they will read it differently. They'll Mm. have like their tone will be different at different points and they'll Mm. emphasize things differently. That must be quite interesting Mm. to kind of see that. Mm. Anyway, next question. (laughs) On to tell us about your upcoming book, Brown Girl Like Me, which is due to come out in the autumn. Yeah. Um, what's the journey been like to kind of bring that from an idea into n- not fully real life but very close to being very real close life a
1: book you can smell and touch yes. and feel
0: and, and hold a- <laughs> yeah so so brown girl like me honestly it started many years ago this would be when i was about 18 or 19 when i first started feeling like why is there not a book to help me navigate being a brown girl, why is there not a book that's kind of sharing my stories and my experiences or giving advice on how to navigate a lot of the very confusing questions that many women of colour go through, but but specifically as, as a brown woman who was born and raised here in the West and born and raised in East London but balancing these multiple identities of what it means to be a brown woman and all the things that encompass who we are. And for years, I felt like I couldn't see any of those stories being told. I couldn't see them in literature. I couldn't see them in historiography. I couldn't see them in nonfiction fiction. I couldn't see them in mass mainstream media either. And I was like, Brown women exist. We are here. Yeah. Why is our story not being told or when it was being told when I would see it in kind of mainstream media it was the same old tropes coming out time and time again about Asian women being passive and Asian women being oppressed and Asian women being docile. And I was like, well, the brown women I know are so much more than this. Mm-hmm. Yes, that may be a part of some of the things that that we have faced and suffered but there is so much more there's so much more to who we are um and that went on for years I then went to university and then went into the working world and kind of still felt that sense of being erased and ignored and and stereotyped um, and that brought me to to then coming up with the concept for this book and writing down this idea for a brown girl like me and I actually first wrote the idea for it when um we were we were on our honeymoon and we were at a campsite I was sitting on my laptop laptop just kind of reflecting on some of these ideas and I guess that's where travel really helps it gives you time to kind of decompress and and let these things um, come kind of forward in your conscience a little bit and I started writing down those ideas and when we got back to the UK started formalizing that proposal a little bit more started looking into the publishing industry a little bit more in different avenues whether that was self-publishing whether that was crowdfunding or, or going through the more traditional route of finding an agent and trying to approach a publishing house Um, and I started to really do the work do the research I spent a good couple of months of understanding that whole industry um, to the point where I then got myself a literary agent and started putting that proposal together and finessing it and then at that same stage was when I decided to take a break from teaching. And it wasn't because I hated teaching or hated the classroom or hated young people. It was just because it felt like the right time to take a pause from that and and look at this journey of being a poet and a writer a little bit more. And so that was in late 2019. So I I left teaching in December of 2019. In January of 2020, started working on this pitch and this proposal, kind of really finessing it. And then we sent it out to, to publishers. And then, obviously, in March of 2020, we had the worldwide pandemic, and and the whole world turned upside down. And I didn't know what would happen from there. I thought, at that stage, would would any more books be published? Would any publishers be interested? Are there going to be other priorities right now? And I was really disheartened. I thought, okay, maybe this timing wasn't right, and and nothing was going to happen. Sorry, sounds alarm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, I'm
2: yes. Sorry, funny story on that alarm. I said it for this time every day, it goes off at five past five, and it just says sticking to plan. Question mark. I forgot just to, to tell remind phone. yourself. <laughs> yeah. And I am sticking to the plan because I'm speaking to you, so it's all good. Sorry about that.
0: <laughs> Are you doing what you're meant to be doing right now? Is exactly. that what you're sorry to tell me? Oh, that's so good. I have like, to... I
2: had my phone on airplane mode as well. Oh, I, no. I knew
0: No, we oh, got up got okay. and Right. Until you were saying the pandemic I think the pandemic is a good place to start <laughs> so then and then in in March of 2020 obviously the pandemic happened and the whole world turned upside down and I thought maybe this wasn't the right time to get the book out there maybe it's not going to get published maybe no one's going to sign it and it felt a little disheartened then but Within a few weeks, we then started getting offers and the book went to auction. It was all very exciting. And I was in the really fortunate position of then deciding which publisher I wanted to go with. And I decided to pick a publisher that really felt the right place for my book and my story and really understood this message and and decided to sign with Pan Macmillan's Bluebird um, in May of last year. Mm. And since then, I've been I've been working on the book. And the concept was obviously something I'd thought of for years. And I knew what themes I wanted to w- touch on. And that was themes like mental health, things like the body and body image, things like the classroom and our education system, um, as well as bringing it more into kind of this new decade as well. So I do look on, on topics like living in a digital age. And, and what does that mean for women of color, where in this last decade, we've seen a lot of South Asian women using social media as a way to understand their identity and navigate their identity and and find solidarity and sisterhood, which has definitely been a really positive thing in the digital age. But also how do we navigate the scary place that is the digital world and the dangers and the lack of safety that's also in those same spaces? So how do we find sisterhood and solidarity, but also keep ourselves safe? So it's really looking at everything there is to be a brown woman in this day and age. And and it's definitely the book I wish had existed um, for myself and will hopefully help lots of other brown women like myself too. Um, And I've been interviewing women from across the country to gather their stories and gather their voices um, on these particular issues. There's, There's kind of leaders in their field, there are young people, there is kind of my youngest interviewee, is 15. And the eldest uh, is probably in her late 90s. So we've got a real yeah. real age range. of That is of, of, a real life range. <laughs> yeah, because I, I wanted just to reflect all those different demographics. And I didn't want it to be London centric either. So I definitely wanted to interview women who are living in the Midlands and different parts of the UK as well, to make sure their stories and their voices are heard. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really special book. And now that I finished the first draft of of the manuscript just a few weeks ago, and just kind of reflecting on that feeling, I I, I never expected it to be such a healing process for me personally. And and it was surfacing a lot of of things I'd held inside for a lot of years and and really unpacking those things. Um, But also hearing other women's stories as well and realising that their experiences were so similar or, or perhaps so different and 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 understanding those perspectives um was really important. So that's that's what I've been doing for the last year. So yeah, I during, can during...
1: imagine how incredible. That sounds like an incredible process.
2: And, and am I right in saying that it's the first kind of book of its kind as in, in the, a long the stories time. you're sharing. Yeah, yeah. Or at least for 40 years or something mm. like that. Am I right so yeah, in like saying that
0: was it that, that was one of the 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 major things that came out of doing a bit of research into why was it a lack of literature in in this way or why were there no other non-fiction books and the only other one I could find in the same sense that looks at South Asian women in the UK and their stories and collecting these narratives the last one was in 1979 um, Mm -hmm. and it was a, a fantastic book by Amrit Wilson called Finding Our Voice um but the fact that there had been nothing else other than that for 40 years just made no sense to me and and it was about time that we have a newer version of that story of what does it mean today in this especially in this new crazy crazy time of this new decade so
1: absolutely I was just gonna say it's like decades 19... within years now I think
0: yeah. that's kind of what's happening
1: 1979 to now there's probably like a hundred years worth of stuff has happened of stuff <laughs> yeah. in a very short time um just before we round off I'd love to explore a little bit about creativity and happiness um and a little bit about how you Use creativity for your well-being. I know we've obviously touched a lot on that um, before in your earlier years and how you develop poetry. But um, do you have any daily or weekly rituals that you follow that make you feel happier or you use to for for some self-care?
0: Yeah, no, really important. And and this is something I've been trying to navigate a lot, obviously, in the last 12 months about how do I separate writing as a writer, as my job? From the writing that's just for me. Yeah. Because I do have to come back to the fact that I started writing and I started poetry as a way to heal. And that was something that was just for me and for myself to to heal. Um, So now that it's also become my job, essentially, how do I separate the two? So it's something I'm still trying to navigate. But what I'm trying to do now is actively and proactively, three times a week taking the time to journal, and taking the time to to write poetry that has got nothing to do with anything else I'm doing. That's just my time, it's got nothing to do with my book, it's got nothing to do with commissions, it's got nothing to do with any of those outside external factors, and that's just my time to to sit and write. Um, And that's something I've kind of more consciously been doing only in the last couple of months of taking three times a week just to spend that free writing time for myself. Um, And I think that's something a lot of creatives have to be conscious of when, when the thing that we love and the thing that heals us also becomes our job essentially. And it's also the thing that that's putting food on the table. And it also is, is, is that part of our life. It's really important to differentiate the difference and, and still using those tools for yourself as well as giving out to the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's something that one of my mentors said to me recently, and it's a question I couldn't even answer where she said to me, a lot of the work that I do, whether it's teaching, whether it's poetry, whether it's writing, I do a lot of work that's giving energy out and I said, yes, yeah, those things are me giving energy out and, and giving to other people. And then she asked me, what am I doing to put energy back in? Mm. What am I doing to fill and you nourish can't... myself? Yeah. And I couldn't answer the question. And that was quite, quite a, a significant moment for me that I couldn't answer that question. I couldn't actually figure out anything that wasn't giving energy out. I was still naming things. I was like, oh, how about this? And she said, no, that's still (laughs) giving energy out. And how about this? And she'd say, no, that's still giving energy out. So that's something I'm figuring out right now. What what is it that I'm doing just for myself to refill that energy? Mm. Because when you're doing doing creative jobs that is giving out a lot of energy, you need to be filling yourself back up And you need to be taking the time To, to fill fill yourself back up I yeah. mean I no. could not <laughs> agree
1: with that More like we say yeah. that all the time The irony of setting up a creative business And then hardly ever mm. doing it ourselves Because you're always thinking about well, that email Or yeah. well you know it's, well, And it's taking us some time to get to
2: Yeah like sorry It's hardly ever doing it just for enjoyment Yes We sorry. set it up mm. because so much, yeah. we love doing creative things We're like cool Everybody should be doing this So let's try and set up a space to do it and then Mm. it's like if I'm doing lino printing I'm thinking oh how can we teach this a bit better the next time rather than just enjoying the lino printing as an example oh
1: how do I should I record Mm. this so I can put it on Instagram you know and it's just yeah yeah. Mm. the thing
2: that I found really good I've started very intentionally um doing the artist's way you might might have heard of the book it's a Julia cameron book and it's kind of for artists to rediscover their creative side almost and it's just like i'm doing that i'm not showing anybody the stuff i'm making and kind of Mm -hmm. following the process and just being creative for just enjoyment on a friday morning or saturday morning Mm. spending two or three hours that's so nice because i kind of almost in my head just push that as like that's not a thing i can enjoy because it's work but it's slowly Mm -hmm. kind of coming back again um, yeah
1: it's it's, nice I like how they call it uh, an artist date with yourself (laughs) Mm, I like that yeah have an artist date and you know that's you know the date you you don't have any other commitments you show Mm. up you show up feeling fresh feeling good feeling intentional and that's what you do. And yeah, I need to, I mean, I need to copy that and take Khalifa out of that yeah, because every time you do it, it's it does totally uh, look what you. I
2: made.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's always like that.
2: Is, is there anything else before we kind of touch uh, go towards the end or some kind mm. of time now? Is there any other daily or weekly rituals that you'd recommend for people listening yeah. as in really good advice to kind of sit down, have intentional time to just? be creative and enjoy whatever you're doing with no expectations no worries about work or anything is there any other things you do I don't know like go for long walks or Mm. have a cup of green tea in the morning or anything else that might be useful for people
0: yeah, those, those exactly those things that aren't are necessarily to do with work or necessarily to do with those kind of activities are going for long walks. I, I'm really thankful that our dog gets us out of the house twice a day. So a good one-hour walk in the morning, a good one-hour walk in the evening. Wow. And so I, I usually don't take my phone with me either, which is really lovely. So no pinging, no notifications, no nothing. Or if I do have my phone on me, it's usually on silent. Um, and those two hours a day... I've I... I I call them precious, I call it precious time because it really is precious time where I'm taking that time just to be with me and my husband and our dog and being out in nature and really absorbing that time. So going for long walks is definitely one for me and I do that twice a day. Um, A new one this year has also been gardening which I never thought I'd be a gardener or a a planting fanatic but like over the last 12 months uh, we also are a carer for my husband Grandma, um, and she's definitely got green fingers. So she, we've been learning lots from her. Um, nice. But gardening is another thing, which is just something for me. I don't have to attach it to any of my other work or any of my writing or who I am in that space. Gardening is just just for me and mm-hmm. growing growing our vegetables and and planting different flowers. Um, and obviously, this time of year is perfect. So we're kind of starting to sow all our seeds, and we'll be harvesting them and then later in the summer. Oh it's really lovely time um but yeah gardening has been a new one i i thought that would be something i'd do later on in life but yeah. at 20, 20 28 i'm already loving gardening you're really loving any it. age by the time you're <laughs> at 70
1: you'll be a master, you'll be like a
2: landscape <laughs> a of interest have you planted any potatoes and the reason i asked this is that a couple of friends of mine had allotments and they planted <laughs> potatoes and they like you can grow a lot of potatoes in a small space so you end up with hundreds more than you actually really
0: need. Yeah. yeah potatoes are so robust you can grow them anywhere so it doesn't matter too much about where you're growing them or how great the soil is or how much space you have potatoes are a really easy one to do anywhere and yeah you will find that when you harvest it you're like well, what do I do with this many potatoes really? yeah we we had the same thing last year that we were We just started gardening, we're so excited, we planted so much um, and ended ended up harvesting so so many potatoes at the end of it but what we did was um we did freeze what we could so we cut up um some of the potatoes if you soft boil them and freeze them you can use them for chips um so we tried to be quite creative with what we did with with all the potatoes so nothing went to waste yeah yeah we did potatoes carrots um lots of green food so spinach and greens and and peas um but yeah, this, this summer we're going to be a bit more creative and see anything different we can try try this yeah. year. So yeah, gardening. Oh my I goodness.
1: Love it. <laughs> guys, make sure everyone listening, make sure you check out her Instagram, if only for seeing what they harvest this summer. <laughs> it's incredible. I love seeing what you guys have in your garden.
2: Is that a different one to behind the net
0: No, it's the same one. <laughs> yeah.
1: But I do. Um, how have you found your general approach to life and time? changing if at all um since pursuing a more creative or a creative um vocation
0: yeah i guess one of one of the biggest things from going from full-time teaching to then part-time teaching then to no teaching was that sense of, of structure completely mm. went out the window that as a teacher, you're, what I say is you live your life in six weeks. So mm. a term is six weeks, every six weeks, you know you're going to have some sort of holiday whether it's a half term, whether it's Christmas break or an Easter break, you know what your term looks like, you know what every single day looks like in the term sense of you have a timetable for the week, you know what lessons are teaching and, and everything is very structured. To then becoming self-employed or becoming an entrepreneur, your, your lifestyle looks completely different. And I, as somebody that liked keeping busy, was falling into some bad habits at the start of always working and consistently feeling like I had to be busy or consistently feeling like I had to be productive. Um, and that got to a point where I was burning out and I was getting exhausted and I wasn't making time for myself or, or for nourishing myself or supporting my mental fitness. So that's something I'm, I'm starting to navigate and understand a bit better now about how do I set boundaries? Um, how am I dealing with my time a bit better? How do I say no is is one of the, the biggest things for me recently of, of not feeling the need to say yes to everything. Um, and I think that's something that, in in this industry you may feel like you need to do that you need to say yes to every opportunity that comes through because you might be afraid that something like that won't come up again or what will happen if i miss this opportunity but i think the moment you start to respect yourself and you respect your own time other people will too um and and saying no when i need to or kind of setting the boundaries that i need to is is really important for myself so that i can kind of um, convey that to others as well and and, and other people respect that time too and um, so yeah I think that's been one of the biggest shifts for me and one of the biggest things I'm trying to navigate about having a super structured life as a teacher to a very unstructured life now and and how does that look for me and and how do I make that work as well as balancing all the other parts of who I am and the other parts of my life like being a wife and being a daughter and being a sister and being an auntie and being a friend. How do I make sure all those really important parts of me um, don't get lost? And I do take the time to nourish all those things as well as, as, as my work life. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's so yeah, that's a really nice Good way answer. to put it, yeah. nourishing mm-hmm. kind of things outside mm-hmm. of work or mm-hmm. the day job or your creative vocation whatever the case is. It's so mm-hmm. important because And
1: nourish is a very intentional word. Yeah, mm-hmm. which I like. It's not a oh, by accident, by the by it's a, I'm intentionally going to give time to this, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. So the last thing cuz we had a question about the proudest moment in your life, but I think it's probably the, the Queen thing, but is there another <laughs> one? I
0: really wish to add. Um, I actually, yeah, I wouldn't say that's my proudest moment. I'd definitely say that, that that was a really special moment. Um, but the proudest moment, I think, I think the proudest moment would 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 have to be more recent, actually. Um, and I think I'm still trying to to reflect on it a little bit a little bit more, but right now, one of the proudest moments was was the CBBC film that I worked on yeah. recently. Yeah, um, top lot that- on not. Yeah, The Top Knot or Not was something very unexpected. Um, I'd always been really interested in script writing and writing short stories. So that was definitely a creative part of me that I was exploring. But I was then given the opportunity to write this uh, short film. And it was my first uh, script to screen project. And it was telling the story of a young Sikh boy deciding whether he w- wants to keep his hair or not. And it was a, it was a really personal story just because my, my husband is a turban wearing Sikh. Um, my nephews are, are all growing their hair. Um, and all have top knots so it was a really personal story in that sense that it was it related to a lot of the people in my life that I'm very close to and I, I really wanted to do justice to that story and and to tell it as authentically as I could and when it then released out into the world and when everyone got to see it the, the reaction was incredible and I'm still receiving messages till to this day about how 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 moved people were by it or how incredible it was for them to see somebody that looked like them like on a them. tv screen yeah um so i think at the moment this may change but this is that was probably one of my most proudest moments um, amazing nice. as a oh, writer congratulations on yeah, that yeah, well
2: done mm. and i have to give a shout out to indy just For yes. he <laughs> listening so yes. hello indy <laughs> um, diana used to work with indy years ago really great guy yeah um, Obviously, your partner a and husband and life and mm. business now a little bit and, and all sorts of things. But
0: yeah, yeah. he's okay. been here every every step of every step of the journey. And it's now becoming a bit more formal in terms of us working together, which is yeah. quite an exciting journey. Mm. Um, but he has been there every step of the way. He was there at that campsite when we first started writing that book proposal. He was there when we were researching how to get published and finding a literary agent. Um, he was there every moment I got rejections and every moment that I failed um as well as all the beautiful successful moments too there's been times of, of failure and rejection over the last couple of years as well where I had to pick myself back up and and he had he was there he was there with me every every moment of the way so wow. yeah I'm, I'm so grateful for for him being the partner that has supported me along this entire journey so yeah <laughs> we, we laugh sometimes <laughs> and I've never said this before so you're getting a real exclusive here and he's gonna laugh so much when he hears this but when we sit with the, the the name behind the Nidra was something I came up with obviously when I first started and it was my stage name and and near means kind of the soul behind your eyes and it, and it's a sanskrit word uh-huh. with, with lots of different meanings mm. um, but he sometimes laughs and says he is behind the nature <laughs> <laughs> he is behind it um the nircha, yeah it's that. a joke we have but yeah he's a huge part of of the entire journey and, and it's exciting we're going to be working more together now yeah. and seeing what that looks like too
2: okay so where can people find out more i know we mentioned it the Instagram handles. Yes. And I'm afraid to say it again because of mm. my pronunciation. So if you wouldn't mind sharing, where can people find out more, more about you? Um, Absolutely. And if, I guess the book as well, if people yes. want to find out more about the book, mm. I know, I'm not sure if it's available to pre-order, but if there's a website or anything around it, feel free to share now. And then I think we're going to wrap up with, if possible, a, a favorite of line lines. or two from one of your favorite poems if you wouldn't oh. mind reciting one
0: yeah. if you can
2: remember sorry to put you on the spot
0: <laughs> oh no 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 problem at all so yeah you can find all my all my socials at behind the netra that's n-e-t-r-a my website www.behindthenetra.com um but For the book by this summer, so summer of 2021, the pre-order link will be coming out. So definitely keep Mm. an eye out for that. We will be having an exciting book cover reveal and the pre-order link will be coming out this summer. Mm. Um, So yeah do do stay tuned for that and yeah I'd be honored to share a bit of a poem um, and I've, as a spoken word poet we have to memorize a lot of our poems so I'm lucky whenever I get put on the spot there will always be one that's kind of sitting comes there amazing. Sit, yeah comes to me so um I'll share it's a poem called I Am it's uh, definitely a poem I love to open every show with every event that I do um it's one that I wrote for International Women's Day a few years ago and mm. um, so this is I Am I am raising my voice so all the forgotten voices can be heard and I am holding my fist in the air for the independent women that are given the B words and I am clearing up the blurred lines because in these confines I still stand here with a strong spine because what is mine is mine and a no means no and a yes means yes and yes. I am her stories that have been forgotten from the histories, these historical women treated as if they were mysteries, his story. You're feeding us a false etymology. I am more than every single one of my responses being an apology. I am every lioness ripping through the stereotypes attached to our gender. I'm the feminist agenda, the so-called burned bras, the lack of female main role movie stars, all the girls in my gender study seminars. I'm the women chained to railings to get our vote. I am every hunger strike guard in their throat. I am Miss McCarthy teaching me I can achieve anything. I'm the female warriors, my bug or bodicea that could defeat any king. I am my trainers who said I got a mean left hook and I am all the women forgotten from my school textbook.
1: A little bit from That's... I Am <laughs> What a way so to awesome. end Thank you so much Jaspreet for joining us And sharing that incredible Poem, everyone please Check out Behind the Netra To see more about Jaspreet And yeah, thank you so much for joining us
0: Thank you guys, thank you so much for having me This has been been honestly one of my Favourite podcasts to, to record So <laughs> thank you guys so much And, and letting, me, letting me share my journey with you guys
2: So that's the end of that episode. We hope you enjoyed. What did you learn? If you haven't subscribed yet, be sure you do. So you get first dibs on all future episodes.
1: Be sure to check out the previous ones too. There's tons of useful nuggets in them. We do the podcast for free in the hope that it is helpful to you. So any support is much appreciated to help us grow it. Tell a friend, your dog, your cat about the podcast. If you enjoyed it or even better, leave us a review. We absolutely love reading them.
2: If you fancy getting a little creative, be sure to check out at MYO London or at Creative Jungle Co on Instagram or just get in touch.
1: Here's to a more colorful, creative, and happier rest of your week. You
2: You got got this, you creative creative legends. legends.